Hello, and welcome back to another installment of Strange Occurrences. As always, all music in this episode, save for the theme, which was written by myself, was written, performed, and allowed to be used free of charge by Kevin McLeod. And as usual, thanks to Brian, Josh, and Jack for their generosity that allows Horror 4H to be accessed in its entirety. Without their donations, only a few episodes at a time would be available. If you want to contribute, please head over to patreon.com slash horror4h. That's the number four and then the letter H and pledge whatever you want, starting from a dollar a month on up. The money goes to keeping the episodes free of charge and available at all times. Today's Strange Occurrences is heavily inspired by the Yuba County 5 case, and I highly recommend you find a podcast or YouTube channel dedicated to odd phenomena and listen to their true story, as it is quite an interesting tale and full of high strangeness. Also, as always, everything that happens in this episode of Strange Occurrences is fiction. These events are not real, and save for some potential place names, any resemblance to people or places, real or fake, is completely unintentional and coincidental. Now sit back, have a hard time relaxing, and if you're going out for the night, think about staying in instead. It may save your life. Gray Barn Mountain is the second highest peak in Kentucky, at just shy of 4,000 feet above sea level. It's settled in the northeastern edge of Kentucky and borders West Virginia. Its name comes from a prominent rock formation on its southern-facing front that in the right light appears to be a large barn and made from gray wood. From the late 1800s until the mid-1950s, Gray Barn Mountain was owned by various coal companies and interested parties and was heavily mined for its coal and other minerals. It sits squarely in the central Appalachia, apology to any residents of the region if I do not pronounce that correctly. Despite the mining and logging that took place on and around the mountain, it still maintains a great deal of its natural beauty and splendor, and after mining operations ceased in 1954, it has become a popular area to hike and camp in. The region was deemed a national park after it was sold to the federal government from mining and logging companies and has enjoyed protections ever since. There's a large abundance of diverse wildlife and plant life in the area, and most who hike around the Graybarn Mountain Trails return feeling invigorated and with a newfound respect for the land. For the residents of the nearby town of Harlanville, Kentucky, the mountain and its trails and lands hold a deeper meaning. For decades, the mountain was the primary source of jobs and money in the region, with virtually everyone in the town working for a mining or logging company or supplying those families who did work for them. The mountain was a double-edged sword, providing economic opportunities but often at the sacrifice of their health and even lives. The pollution from the mining operations has long been blamed by the residents for their higher than the national average rate of cancer and more than a few men wound up suffering from what eventually would be called black lung. On top of that, the coal mining of the early 1900s was unsafe, and the logging operations were equally unsafe. It was not uncommon for someone going to work to come back missing fingers or entire limbs, or not to come back at all. Because of the death and suffering associated with the area, it should come as no surprise to learn that the region has its fair share of ghost stories. Along with that, it being part of the Appalachian Mountains, stories of cryptids and supernatural creatures date back long before the European colonizers arrived. Despite the two cultures of the indigenous peoples and the late arriving Europeans sharing little in common, anyone who lives in the region knows to take certain things seriously that those raised in more urban or outside of the area would scoff at. No resident in their right mind goes out in the forest at night alone, or at all if they don't have to. Whistling is something you'll almost never hear in the evening, and if you're out and about after sunset near the tree line and you hear your name called, no you didn't. The line between superstition and fact is blurred in Appalachia, and the smart ones pay attention to local customs and avoid pushing their luck. Unfortunately, teenagers, especially teenage boys, are fans of pushing their luck and view it as something to strive for. And that leads us to the beginning of the case of the Grey Barn 4. 
David Tucker, age 15, his older brother, Reggie Tucker, age 17, Lawrence Potter, age 16, and Doug Tanner, age 17, went into the woods near the top of Greybarn Mountain on a warm summer night in 1988 and never came back down alive. It was a week after July 4th, July 11th, a Monday. Many in and around Harlanville were still celebrating the holiday. As is the usual custom in much of the United States, fireworks are set off leading up to and well after the 4th of July, as is an overindulgence in alcohol and other substances. Friends of the boys later told others that the group of four didn't drink often, but that because of the clever dealings they'd managed to trade fireworks their parents had left over from the 4th for a couple cases of beer and a bottle of wild turkey, made and bottled not too far from Harlanville. Some of those same friends disclosed during the investigation and some years later that there was supposed to be a larger group of teens heading up the mountain that night. Originally, it was planned to be a small party. However, the parents of one of the friend group discovered their intent, and multiple other parents were contacted, and the party as a whole was shut down before it could be finalized. Some of the friend group also told investigators that while they were unsure if the four had managed to get a hold of it, there were plans to get a substantial amount of marijuana as well. Due to the intervention of a few parents, the group went from over a dozen teenagers to just the four boys. Apparently, during the round of phone calls, the Tuckers hadn't been contacted due to oversight, the Potters were contacted, but Lawrence's father had passed away a few years prior from cancer, and his mother worked most days and nights at a local diner, and she did not receive the message about her son being involved in a potential party until she returned home that evening near 10 o'clock, well after her son and his friends had left for the mountain. Doug Tanner's father, Henry, knew of the boys' plans, but did little or nothing to stop his son from attending. Henry was a known alcoholic, and there were numerous rumors of him being rather abusive towards Doug, and often neglectful as well. The investigation after the fact helped substantiate these rumors. It isn't known exactly when the boys left for the mountain, but the last time they were seen was leaving a local gas station around 6.30pm after gassing up Doug Tanner's truck. He worked various odd jobs for two years, saving what he could before he managed to buy a dark green Ford F-Series in early 1988, and so he'd become the designated chauffeur of the group and was usually the one taking them wherever they wanted to go. According to the cashier at the gas station, Debbie Lanier, a classmate of the group, they filled up the truck, bought some snacks, some hot dogs, some sodas, and a couple packs of cigarettes. Doug flirted with her and tried to get her to ditch work early to come with them up the mountain. However, Debbie was the sole worker at that time and couldn't. She later said she'd considered herself lucky that a co-worker called in sick, or else she most likely would have accompanied them. There were a few roads up the mountain, but the most common one, and the one they likely took, was a fairly wide road, big enough for some of the heavier equipment that used to be used in transporting materials up and down to the mines and logging camps. However, there are multiple side roads, and so later when the investigation began, which path the boys took was a major point of contention. Both the Tuckers had told their parents they were spending the night in another friend's house. Lawrence Potter had left a note for his mother that he was spending the night with the Tuckers. When Marie Potter returned home from her shift at the diner that evening, she saw Lawrence's note on the kitchen table and said she had a small meal before finally listening to the messages on her answering machine, one of which was informing her of the friend group's intent to have a party. She quickly called the Tuckers, who confirmed her fears upon telling her that the boys were not at their house either. Still, neither the Tuckers nor Marie Potter felt like their sons were in any real danger and assumed they had decided to have a small get-together in the woods on the mountain without the larger friend group. The boys, having grown up in the area, were all competent when it came to staying alive in the woods overnight. Essentially, a small camping trip was nothing to be overly concerned about. While they were angry and upset their kids had lied, they assumed they would return the next day. However, by early afternoon the next day, none of them had come home. Mrs. Tucker went by the diner to tell Marie, and both women agreed that they should contact the local police. 
Within a few minutes, Sheriff Butch Rollins arrived at the diner and took the statements of both the women. He later told the press he initially assumed the boys had had a wild night, got drunk, and were just sleeping it off and hoping to come home later in the day in an effort to hold off on being punished as long as possible. Essentially, he refused to do any real work on the case until they'd been missing longer. A seemingly unrelated report was also given to Sheriff Rollins later that day and would be deemed highly relevant later on. William J. Bolden Jr. was a well-known alcoholic in the town and spent many nights in the drunk tank and was often seen wandering around the town after dark. He'd recently been kicked out of his home by his wife and had been spending nights with any friends who'd take him in, or jail, or the woods. He'd made his way back down the mountain the same morning, and by the time the sheriff had met with Mrs. Tucker and Mrs. Potter, William had managed his way back into town and began telling stories to anyone who would listen about an incident he'd had the night before. The sheriff was one of those who'd heard the story, but at the time, it was considered just drunk ramblings from an unreliable source. According to Bolden, the night before, or early that morning before the sun rose, he was up on Greybarn Mountain in a tent he'd managed to acquire and set up where he was awoken by yelling. He said he couldn't quite make out what was being yelled, but that it sounded panicked. After a minute or two of the yelling, there was silence for another few minutes. he just started to fall back asleep when he heard noises of multiple people running. The running was coming almost straight for him, but turned near last minute in a different direction, and then he heard two gunshots. He described them as rifle shots. After another couple minutes, he heard what sounded like someone walking towards him, but again the footsteps turned just before reaching him and moved in the same direction as the running. But then he heard what could only be described as dragging sounds past him back up towards the mountain. This was not the first time Bolden had told stories of being near murders, assaults, and more, and almost always the incidents resulted in being completely fictional or a gross misinterpretation of the facts and so his story this time was also summarily dismissed as the invention of a drunk man having nightmares. There are also some thoughts that perhaps the gunshots he heard were actually the boys setting off some of the fireworks they'd acquired, and that the running and so on was being done to get away from said fireworks. There was another report concerning Graybar Mountain that night as well. There was a popular hiking trail that traversed a large portion of the mountain. On the night the boys went up, and near the area they were suspected to have been in, two hikers who remained anonymous in official reports claimed to have seen strange lights. Their report states that two white lights were seen hovering slightly above the mountain, above where they were. The lights supposedly moved slightly sli side to side before shooting up quickly and were followed by a large burst of yellow light. Explanations for these lights have ranged from headlights of Doug Tanner's truck and reflection of those lights off trees or other surfaces, all the way to ball lightning or supernatural explanations such as will-o'-the-wisps or aliens. Some others believe that possibly these lights could also be attributed to the fireworks. Just before sunset on the 12th, the boys were officially declared missing persons, and plans began to search the mountain the next day once the sun rose. There are a few stories of people going up that night and searching for the boys in the dark, including the father of David and Reggie, a Mr. Daryl Tucker. Daryl and a few of his friends gathered up flashlights and a few other necessities before tramping around the woods in the dark and searched for several hours before being forced to return back to town around 9 p.m. Daryl claimed to have seen a flash of color that reminded him of one of David's shirts, reportedly the shirt he was wearing when he disappeared, off in the distance, shortly before Sheriff Rollins arrived and threatened the men with arrest for interfering with police investigation. In official statements, the sheriff said he was worried that the few men, emotional and in the dark, would destroy or disturb any evidence in the boys' disappearance and would hinder the investigation. However, according to statements made later to the press, Daryl Tucker said, quote, I think Butch knew he fucked up. Excuse the language. 
I think he knew we could have found my boys and the others if he'd just listened to us when we told him first thing they were gone. And I think he wanted them to stay missing so he wouldn't get stuck with their deaths on his hands. Far as I'm concerned, Butch killed my kids. End quote. Early on the 13th, several dozen people from the town and rangers from nearby areas arrived, along with members of the Explorers Search and Rescue. And all in all, nearly 100 people began a coordinated effort combing the area on Greybarn Mountain that the boys were believed to have been near, and not far from where Daryl claims he saw possibly David's shirt color. For the majority of the day, no traces of the boys were found, save for truck tracks. However, them being on a main in-and-out road, it was unclear if the tracks were of Doug Tanner's truck or another similarly built vehicle. It wasn't until near 4 p.m. that day that his truck was found, a good five miles away from where they had assumed the boys had been. What was very confusing about this, though, rather than the distance, was the location itself. There were no tracks in or out of the small clearing the vehicle was found in. It was in perfect working condition, save for being out of gas, which was strange considering it had been filled shortly before the boys left to go up the mountain. Also of note, and lending to the mysterious aura of the disappearances, is the fact that the seats inside the truck had been removed, and all possessions were completely removed as well. The inside of the truck had simply the frame, flooring, radio, and steering wheel. Everything else was gone. There were also no signs of tools or that the removal of everything in the truck had taken place in the clearing. Furthering the oddity of it all, the trees around the clearing would have prevented the truck from being driven in. According to one of the ESAR, Explorer Search and Rescue members, it was, quote, like the truck had just been gently placed in that clearing by the hand of God, end quote. After finding the truck, a new grid pattern was drawn up, and the search party prepared to return the next day to expand from the clearing. During that evening, multiple people called the sheriff's office to report fireworks going off on the mountain, not too far from the clearing where the truck had been found. They went off in rapid succession, however by the time the sheriff and others had gone up the mountain to search, they'd stopped. Instead, combined with the heat and dryness, the fireworks had apparently started a fire. While the local fire department was quick to respond, the prevailing winds that night quickly turned the fire into a small but out-of-control blaze. Work was done to ensure it wouldn't travel further down the mountain and endanger the town or any homes near it, but the fire spread and was not contained and put out for another day and a half, stalling the search for the boys. During the subsequent investigation into the fire, it was determined that it had been set deliberately and that the fireworks likely hadn't been the cause. The exact cause remains undetermined, but an unidentified accelerant was used. In the burned area of the mountain forest, they found some human remains. A few human finger bones, charred and scattered, were found near the start of the fires. Their size indicated that they may have belonged to a small teenage boy, and while there was no DNA to test, it was assumed that they were likely the fingers of David Tucker. After the investigation into the fire, the search for the boys resumed, but after a week of searching, no trace was found, and the searching began to dwindle until within another week it had been called off completely. It wasn't until years later that another strange turn happened regarding it. In late December 1997, a couple had been hiking on the opposite side of Greybarn Mountain and were caught in a surprise snowstorm. They were unable to turn around and get back down the mountain, but happened upon what appeared to be a deserted cabin. They forced their way in, as it had been barred from the inside, and kept to the main room where the fireplace was, burning furniture to stay warm. They ended up stuck in the cabin for two days before the weather cleared enough for them to make their way back down the mountain, and when they did, they informed the local authorities there was a body in the cabin. When the police arrived at the cabin and searched it, they found in one of the bedrooms, the room boarded from the inside, but inefficiently so, 
a desiccated corpse that would later be identified as Doug Tanner. Despite his remains being in the condition they were in, it was determined his right ankle and right arm had suffered major breaks before he died. There was also a large amount of water and food in the room, none of which had been seemingly touched and had gone bad years earlier, though they had likely been fine to consume when he'd been alive. The cause of death could not be determined. The cabin belonged to a local family whose grandfather had built it decades ago. However, the family hadn't used it since his death in the early 1980s, and it had been sitting vacant ever since. They were not suspects in the death of Doug Tanner or the missing boys. No other clues have been found to give any indication of what happened to the remaining three boys who went missing, nor has any information come forward to help determine what caused Doug Tanner's death. All three of the other boys were declared legally dead in the 90s, and Doug Tanner's remains were removed and buried in the local cemetery of Harlanville after they were thoroughly tested. What happened to David and Reggie Tucker and Lawrence Potter? How exactly did Doug Tanner make it miles and miles from where he was last seen with a broken arm and ankle, and how did he die in that cavern after boarding it up from the inside? What was he hiding from? How did his truck end up in the clearing with no feasible entrance or exit for a vehicle that size? Were the lights fireworks, aliens, or something more real and sinister? Were those gunshots heard by William Bolden Jr.? And if so, did those have anything to do with the boys vanishing? Sadly, we will likely never have solid answers regarding the fates of the Grey Barn 4, and it will go down in history as simply a strange occurrence. <laughs>